This morning we're going to re-engage in our exposition of the farewell discourse in John chapters 13 through 16. And just to, by way of recap a little bit, the farewell discourse is basically Jesus' last message to his disciples before he is arrested, tried, crucified, and killed. And it essentially has two parts. The first part was delivered in the upper room during the Last Supper. We see that in chapters 13 through the end of 14. And then the second part was delivered after they left the upper room and walked toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, that's the place where Jesus was arrested. We see that in chapters 15 through the end of 16. And the farewell discourse is immediately followed by Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17. I have been including that in the farewell discourse, but it really stands alone. It happens right after it. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing that needs to be acknowledged and seen as its own thing because it's that important and beautiful. And we'll get there at some point. But during the discourse, as Jesus is preaching to his disciples and teaching them about his exit and these sorts of things, they became the disciples became increasingly anxious, especially over the fact that uh, Jesus was leaving them. And, and none of them wanted Jesus to go and return to the Father. After three years of being physically close to him during his ministry, they just couldn't imagine life without his physical presence. And I think that um, I'm not critical of them for that. I think I would be in the same shoes. I would be in the same boat if I'd got to spend that kind of time with Jesus. It would be hard to imagine him physically leaving. And the Lord, as we've studied the discourse, he sought to quell their anxiety through issuing many, many beautiful promises and, and encouragements And at this point in the narrative, uh, however, their anxiety, I believe, reaches its pinnacle, its highest point, because of Jesus' prophetic words in the previous verses. What did he say in the previous verses? Well, it's been several weeks since we've been studying John, so let me just refresh your memory. Here's something that Jesus said. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Chapter 15, verse 18 that not only got the disciples' attention, but caused them to say, "Uh uh-oh, hmm, we've seen the hatred of the world toward you, the Pharisees trying to constantly arrest you and kill you, with the people in Nazareth trying to throw you off a cliff. Are you saying that we're going to be treated in a similar way? Yes. So this heightened their anxiety. Another thing he said to them, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Verse 20 of chapter 15. You think that that might have began to spike their anxiousness and anxiety and fear? Yes. And then the grand finale we see in chapter 16, verse 2. Here's where Jesus tells them prophetically what is going to actually happen to them. They will put you out of the synagogues, a.k.a. excommunication. You will have absolutely no religious life, no social life, no nothing life in Israel. And he says, indeed, even better, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Whoever, Jesus, hold on a second, can you back up for a second? Did you say, when whoever kills us? Yes, whenever who kills you. So, do you think that these guys were having a moment here? I mean, this is where we left off. Yes, yes, they, they, they were now, they had now transitioned from sorrow over Jesus' exit to sorrow over Jesus' exit and sorrow over excommunication and death. Now they were 
greatly distressed, unimaginably anxious. And what does the Lord Jesus do in the next section? He seeks to comfort them once more by showing that his exit and return to the Father will be highly advantageous to them and to all true disciples. And I have entitled this message, The Ascension Advantage, because there are certain advantages afforded to these men and to all Christians because Jesus left. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you have a phone that you use the app on, turn there. But make sure you shut everything else off. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we will get to work. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves now. We, we bow before you. We fall prostrate spiritually, humbly acknowledging our weakness and utter inability to comprehend the things of God without your aid through the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would send him to open our eyes, ears, hearts, minds to the truth, that those who are saved would be sanctified, that those who are not yet saved would be saved through the Holy Spirit. May you be glorified during this time. We love you and pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. We're going to begin with verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6. Jesus continues, after telling them about what's coming their way with the persecution and death and these things, Jesus uh, now says this, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, this is the third time that evening that Jesus announces his exit, his ascension, his leaving and returning to the Father. But this time is unique. This time the disciples responded differently. Before they curiously questioned where he was going. Chapter 13, verse 36. Chapter 14, verse 3. And yet here... They do not say, where are you going? Or why don't you break that down for us? They simply remain silent. There's a dead silence. Why? What does Jesus say at the end of verse 6? Sorrow had filled their heart or their hearts. What induced this sorrow? The news about their future excommunication and martyrdom, right? Verse 2. These guys were so sorrowful, so sad, so terrified, struck with fear, they were speechless after learning their fate. And this text illustrates a, a sad phenomenon we have seen in previous sections and in our own lives, that things like sorrow, grief, fear, and anxiety can interfere with our ability to see and embrace God's promises and blessings, etc., etc. That is what is playing out here. Jesus has announced to them once more that he's leaving, which, which is a wonderful proclamation. 
And yet they don't even hear it here because they are so sorrowful. In this scenario, sorrow prohibited the disciples from actually hearing what Jesus said in verse 5. I am going to him who sent me. What Jesus was actually doing here was, was totally pointing to one of the greatest events in human history. What are the three greatest events in human history? The moment in 1969 that the men landed on the moon? No. A great achievement, no doubt. Uh, The moment the Berlin Wall fell in Germany? No. Undoubtedly a great event. The greatest events in human history are the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Those, by far, blow away everything else that's ever taken place or will take place, next to the return of Christ. So so what Jesus said here in verse 5 should have induced rejoicing. These men were standing on the precipice of one of the greatest, greatest events in all of human history. Couldn't even hear it, couldn't even see it, couldn't even comprehend it now because of sorrow in their hearts. This event should have induced rejoicing and elation and celebration, especially since Jesus had already told them that his exit will be preceded by his glorification. Chapter 13, verses 31 to 32. When Jesus said, I'm going to the Father, what he's saying is, I'm going to be glorified soon. And this is the best you can do with your heads in your laps, mourning and weeping and crying over what's going to happen to you? If the disciples had not allowed, because I think it is something that we allow. We all experience sorrow. We all experience grief. But sometimes we allow it to to transform us and and to hold us and to keep us. That's our responsibility not to be ruled by anything else. We have to work at that. And if they had worked at it here and not allowed sorrow to rule in their hearts, they may have been able to connect these words to what he said earlier that evening and rejoiced with him. They would have remembered what he said previously that night. I'm about to be glorified, which is cause for celebration to those who love the Lord. Isn't that our, our, our mission, our heart of hearts as, as, as the people of Christ that our Savior, our Lord, would be glorified? Yes, that is, that is our mission. That is our goal. That is our, our life quest. That is our deepest, deepest desire. And yet they miss it. As students of the Old Testament, as the disciples were, they might have been able to connect Jesus' words, right? This is the third time he tells this to me. He might have been able to connect his words to some of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, in particular Psalm 68, 18, which literally presents the ascension of Jesus Christ and what immediately follows. Psalm 68, 18, you ascended on high. This, 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 is, this is King David writing a thousand years before Jesus ever comes about the ascension of Jesus, about the return of Jesus Christ to heaven after he's completed his mission. It says, you ascended on high. David didn't even know 
that he was prophesying in this way. He thought he was talking about a victory that God had won for them. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. This verse very plainly points to the heavenly victory march of Messiah Jesus Christ. It pictures him ascending, re-entering heaven as the conquering king of kings, leading a large procession of former captives, all whom he liberated from sin, Satan, death, and hell. You and me. He returns these former captives to the Father, takes his seat at the Father's right hand, and then he distributes the spoils of war to his church. Spiritual gifts and spiritually gifted leaders who will equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 8 through 12. That's how Paul interprets Psalm 68, 18. These disciples knew the Old Testament. They knew the Psalms. If, if they hadn't known the Old Testament, if they hadn't understood the Psalms and everything else there, they wouldn't have been anticipating the Messiah. And they were, and they understood, and they knew. But guess what? Sorrow blocked them from being able to make these connections on this night. They should have been rejoicing with the angels. Instead, they've got their heads in their laps, mourning and weeping over what will transpire, and what will happen to them. The disciples were self-focused and too sad to hear the Lord, too upset and, and confused and, and distracted to make the connections and rejoice with Him before He goes to Calvary to suffer unimaginably. I mean, he's just moments away. He's, he's, he's probably within 12 hours or so of the cross. And, and, and if anyone needed comforting and compassion and empathy, it was Jesus. And yet these self-focused men are, in a sense, through their attitude, demanding it for themselves. Jesus is about to to go and win our victory so he can fulfill 68-18 Psalm, so he can perform that victory march. You, you would think that these men would recognize these things and, and just celebrate with him, and they don't. They're consumed by sorrow. MacArthur wrote, these verses present a sharp contrast before the complete selfishness, or selflessness, pardon me, these verses present a sharp contrast between the complete selflessness of Jesus and the utter selfishness of the disciples as the cross loomed ever larger. They should have been comforting him. He should have been their focus, right? Reminds me and, and, and causes me to just be convicted to think how Many times I've been, have I been so self-consumed with whatever, whether it be sorrow or worry or anxiety or anything else, to the point where I've missed opportunities to be a blessing to God's people. Or to, to actually 
comprehend what God has accomplished for me in Christ. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Just as a quick side note, the ascension that we're talking about here did occur. How long after the cross or how long after the resurrection? 40 days. 40 days, Christ goes up to the Mount of Olives and He ascends. He gives the last commission to His disciples, go and preach the gospel to all nations, make disciples, and then He goes and returns. Psalm 68.18 is fulfilled. Every text that points to the ascension is essentially fulfilled, and He goes up into glory, and, and these other things transpire. So this is something that has happened. This is in a historical event. It's done. It's over. In the next verse, Jesus seeks to reason with his sad disciples in an effort to comfort them. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. This is the truth. Not that everything else he said wasn't truth. This seems to be a heightened truth for them in this moment. He says this, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. (laughs) But if I go, I will send him to you. It was as if Jesus had said, "I, I, I know You are sad, I know, you are troubled in your hearts, but you must understand that it will be to your advantage when I go and return to the Father. He's trying to reason with them, like like maybe a, a, a good mother tries to reason with her child as she's about to leave on a business trip or something. Look, I'm coming back and I'm going to bring you a gift. Oh, well, if that's the case, great. See you later, Mom. He's literally parenting them here. Or being a good brother. He's telling them, if I do not go and do this, the helper, the paraclete, right? The Holy Spirit, whom I promise to send to you, will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's reasoning with them as a good parent reasons with his or her child. The great question we have here is how will Jesus' ascension be advantageous to them, to his disciples? What did he basically say here? When he goes up, what comes down? The Holy Spirit. So the advantage is that they get the Holy Spirit. This is to their advantage. Well, How is this an advantage to have Jesus gone physically and the Spirit there with them spiritually? How how is that an advantage? What exactly will the Spirit do for them? Well, we've already studied some of these points in the previous sections. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will give them eternal life. Chapter 7, verse 37 to 39 Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus does give eternal life. Well, I thought the Father gives eternal life. The Father does give eternal life. And now you're saying the Spirit gives eternal life? Yes, guess what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit give eternal life. All three are involved in our salvation, in eternal life. 
And it just happens to be the Holy Spirit who is the one and only communicator of eternal life or salvation. It is His task to deliver what the Father wrought and the Son bought to the elect. If I don't go, the Spirit does not come and affect in your lives eternal life. Now you've got my attention. Can we open the door for you, Jesus, and walk you to the cross? You're not going to be saved if I don't go. And just as another side note, hopefully what we will realize as, as, as we're listening here and studying God's Word, the importance of the ascension, which is essentially a forgotten doctrine and reality and event. I mean, when's the last time you heard a sermon on the ascension? That's a terrible question because it indicts me. Never mind that question. When's the last time you talked about the ascension with somebody? When's the last time you shared? It's not something that we talk about often enough. It is critical and key. If Jesus goes, the Spirit comes, and he will communicate or affect eternal life in those whom Jesus purchased at the cross. If Jesus does not go, we don't have eternal life because the Spirit does not come to give it to us. How important is the ascension? Way up here. What else did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will dwell with them and be in them forever. Chapter 14, verses 16 to 17. This must have been an extraordinary comfort for them because Jesus is leaving. And he's telling them, look, the Holy Spirit's coming. He's never going to leave you. Now, in a sense, Jesus never leaves us because the Spirit manifests Jesus to us. But Jesus' physical presence, it ain't here right now. It can be in one place at a time. And right now, it's seated at the right hand of God on His glorious throne of grace. When Jesus goes, the Spirit will come and He will dwell with them and be in them forever. And He will manifest the presence of Jesus to the disciples and to all believers at all times, no matter where they go and no matter what they're going through. This simply is something that Jesus could not do during His incarnation. As I said, He could be in one place at a time. And in a physical sense, He can still only be in one place at a time. The flesh has placed limitations, time and space limitations on Him in a sense. He is where He is. The Holy Spirit will also become their inner comforter, right? A uh, word that's synonymous with helper in the, in the Greek there is comforter. I, I think Mary over there likes that word instead of helper more. And through a little bit more discipleship, I'll persuade her that helper's stronger. Oh, comforter is a great, a great way to think of the Holy Spirit because he will bring comfort to the disciples who need comfort. Not just them, but all. He will also become their guide. He will also become their power source, right? Their source of power. Their source of power for holy living and righteous walking and, and pursuing purity, among other things. What else did Jesus say? Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them Chapter 14, verse 26. Chapter 15, verse 26. So he will come and he will 
exposit for them on the inside in a mysterious, glorious way the gospel and give them understanding about things they do not yet understand, as well as bring to the remembrance things that Jesus taught them throughout his ministry. I'm thinking that one of the things the Holy Spirit will help them to remember is what Jesus said on this night. Because it's not, it's not registering right now. It's not getting in these thick, self-centered skulls. They're too focused on themselves. They're too focused on their own heartache and sorrow. And the good news is the Spirit's going to come and, and lead them into an understanding of these things and remind them. Albert Barnes put it like this, What is the office of the Holy Spirit? It is to furnish to all Christians the instruction and consolation which would be given by the personal presence of Jesus. Now, I don't like to think of the Holy Spirit as a replacement for Jesus because that assumes that Jesus is no longer available or maybe in our lives. Don't think of it like that. He is a partner with Jesus and He manifests the spiritual presence of Jesus to us. What else did Jesus say the Holy Spirit would do when He comes? He will empower their witnessing. He will empower their ministries, right? He will give them the power to proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim the mighty gospel of our God. Chapter 15, verse 27. I loved it when we focused on that section. Now, th these are... These are the Holy Spirit coming is to their advantage because the Holy Spirit is going to do all of these things for them and for all believers all time. So you can see how it's an advantage. These are not things they were experiencing as they're walking with Jesus during his ministry. It's not that the Lord couldn't do them, but some of these things the Lord just does not do. The Spirit's job is to do these things. So we can see that it is to their advantage that Jesus go and the Spirit come. Now, I think it's very important that we take a few moments to recognize some of the other advantages that are not mentioned here in the text. There are a, a plethora of advantages in the New Testament, and we just don't see them here. And I rarely deviate from our text to talk about anything else, but we're on a particular subject, are we not? We're talking about the advantages that come to the people of God through the ascension. So we've got to talk about some of these other things. I'm going to do it. I don't care. There might be one elder going, oh, I knew he was going to finally go astray. He's not in the text. Well, I'm going to be in a text, elder. There's no elder here who would think that. I hope. Protect me, Lord. We must consider, I think this is the way we look at this, because we don't want to look at a benefit package, right? I'm not, I'm not a marketeer of the benefits of Jesus Christ. I, you want that? You can go down the street over at Coffee Road. That's not what I do. I don't, sorry, that was kind of mean, but it's true. But that's not what I do. So I don't want to just try to sell you a, a bit of goods here, a bill of goods here. No, 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 no. What I want to do is I want us to consider the offices of our ascended Lord. That's what we need to focus on. The giver of the benefits is better than the benefits. Think of these offices of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. These offices he assumed when he returned to the Father and to his throne. Jesus is our prophet, capital P. As our prophet, he pronounced an end to all our sin. 
In the Old Testament, the prophet was the mouthpiece of God to God's people. He spoke the words of indictment against the people for their sin. Isaiah 1.4 called them to repentance. Isaiah 1.18 and pronounced the forgiveness and pardon of God. Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2. Jesus as the final and sufficient prophet has done these things for us, for his people. He came not just proclaiming the word of God. He is the word of God, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. He came to the world because of sin, Matthew 1.21. He proclaimed our need to repent and believe on him, Mark 1.15, right? Repent, believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what else did he do? We believe he, we repent and believe in him through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. He proclaimed our pardon and forgiveness for sin, Colossians 1.14. This is one of his offices. He is the prophet of prophets. He proclaimed something that no other prophet could proclaim in this way because no other prophet was Jesus. As our prophet, you believe in Christ. He repented, turned from your sin, believed in him. He has pronounced something over you that is eternal. Innocent. You've been pardoned. You've been forgiven. I love that. I love thinking of Jesus as our prophet. I'm reminded of a text that talks about how, I believe it's in Hebrews where it talks about how the Old Testament prophets, you know, that was how God communicated with his people. But he now communicates to us through the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. Prophet has made a de- the prophet, the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, has made a declaration over you if you're in Christ, and it's permanent. Think of it like that. That's who he is right now. Right now, he is the prophet. But he's not just our prophet. Jesus is our priest. And we call him our great high priest. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. A priest unlike any other priest. As our priest, Jesus offered not a sacrifice for all our sin. He offered the ultimate sacrifice himself for all our sin. In the Old Testament, the the high priest was the mediator between the holy God and and his sinful people. As mediator, the high priest entered the holy place and offered a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people once a year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.34. He sprinkled the blood of that animal they slaughtered, the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat because of the people's transgressions, Leviticus 16.16. He did this year after year after year. But it was never, never a permanent atonement. It was only temporary to get us to the Lamb of God, to our priest who offered the ultimate sacrifice, not just a lamb, but himself, the lamb. Jesus, as our mediator and high priest, not only offered the sacrifice once and for all, but he is the sacrifice. Like the high priest of old, Jesus entered the holy place, but unlike that high priest or those high priests, he entered to offer himself. He had to enter only one time because of the infinite value of his sacrifice. Super exceeding that of any goat or bull or anything else. A trillion times over, infinite. He goes into 
Think of it like this. He goes in to offer this sacrifice. He is, he is sacrificed. His blood is shed and his blood. He sprinkles his own blood on the mercy seat, making a permanent and perpetual blood sacrifice atonement for those who believe. Who is Jesus right now? He is our prophet. Who is Jesus right now? After the ascension, this is the, these are the roles he assumes. He is our priest. He is our great high priest. He sacrificed himself for you and for me. And he bears that wonderful title. As our priest, Jesus invites us to approach his throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And when we come and pour out our hearts before him, he is sensitive and empathetic because he understands our weaknesses better than anyone. Why? Because he was tempted just as we are tempted, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. As our priest, he makes the ultimate sacrifice himself. He sprinkles his blood on the mercy seat. Perpetual, permanent sacrifice, permanent atonement. And yet he also mediates for us and ministers to us from his throne of grace. And he invites those who are in him to come freely and confidently in our times of need, which is... Monday through Sunday for me. Look, look, let me just say, if, if he doesn't ascend, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and, and we don't have eternal life or, or the ministry of the Holy Spirit or power or anything. We don't have anything. If he doesn't ascend, we, we don't have the prophet office being fulfilled. We, we, don't, we don't have a great high priest how important is the ascension? But he's not just our prophet. He's not just our priest. He is our king. And as our king, he, his rule is so utterly unique it's transcendent. It is so far beyond what any other earthly king has ever done, especially the good kings, David. He rules in such a way to never allow sin to reign over us any longer or again. He doesn't just rule over the cosmos or over his church. He rules over sin in such a sense to render it impotent, incapable of holding the people whom he delivered in bondage. He has won a victory that no other king has ever won. No other king has ever delivered his people from sin. Only tangible physical enemies. In the Old Testament, the monarchy was established for the peace prosperity and welfare of the nation the prototype king was david no king was ever as beloved as, as beloved as he was i mean he really is, you talk to any jew today they'll tell you he's the greatest king we ever had especially since he came after saul the yutz 
No king has ever been as beloved as, as, as David. He was God's vice regent among the people. With David on the throne, the nation of Israel could say, all is well. The people had a, a degree of security and, and, and comfort as him with their king because he was most of the time, a righteous king. Yeah, we know he failed. I'm glad he did because it shows me that, hey, you're not great either, Phil. But for the most part, when you have somebody like him in office who is a man after God's own heart and who, through God's power, extinguishes your enemies and brings in peace and righteousness and these things into your kingdom, this is a king that you love. This is a king that you cherish. This is a king you look back at long after he's gone, and say, man, I wish we had him. Many of us feel that way about Ronald Reagan, although he was no David. Boy, if we could just get another Reagan. Oh, we need to quit living in the past and put our eyes on our king of kings, not a president. But in any case, the people would have great comfort. They could say, all is well. We're, we're good. We're, we're great. I can go to my job. I don't have to worry about Philistines coming over the wall. I think I see one right there, you know? Few things comfort a nation more than having a ruler of righteousness and strength sitting on the throne of power. It was said of David that he reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people, 2 Samuel 8, 15. He was by far the, Israel's greatest earthly king. However, we have a king far greater than David. Jesus came in the line of David as David's son, in a sense, and yet also as David's Lord. Matthew twenty-two forty-two to 45. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, right? Revelation 1, 5, Revelation 19, 16. He rules with perfect justice and equity. David ruled with justice and equity, but not perfect, not perfected. But King Jesus does. As our king, as our glorious king of kings, he has fought our battles. And he now rules in such a way that, that sin never can reign over us again. Never can reign over the people in his kingdom again. Romans 6, 7 through 14. Now let's just recap. Could I talk about other advantages? Yes. But I think what I really want you to see here is that Jesus goes and he sends the Spirit, which is advantageous. But in my opinion, what is equally advantageous, if not more, is Jesus assuming his offices in heaven. prophet, priest, and king. That's who he is right now and forever and ever. Recap, what are the ascension advantages? First, when Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. He gives us eternal life. Wonderful. He dwells with us and in us. Wonderful. He manifests the spiritual presence of Jesus to us and provides us with comfort, guidance, and power. Wonderful. He teaches us the word of God, the gospel. Wonderful. And he empowers our witnessing and ministries. If you think I'm getting up here in my own strength, you are mistaken. You can tell when I'm doing it in my own strength. There's no power in any preaching that's done in our own strength. Second benefit we talked about, when Jesus goes up, he 
assumes his heavenly offices. He is literally right now our prophet, priest, and king. Totally advantageous for him to go for us. It's just, it's just invaluable that he goes up there and gets on his throne. <laughs> closing, and I have a little bit more closing remarks for you, so don't think, oh, he's going to get one paragraph and be done. No. I don't even want to invite the band up here because they'll be standing up here going, I'll call you up. I've got, I've got time here. I'm looking at the clock. Did that thing stop? At this particular moment, we've already talked about this, in the narrative, the disciples were distracted, right? They failed to actually hear what Jesus was telling them because circumstantial sorrow had filled their hearts, right? They weren't making the connections with Jesus' words and the glory he would receive or the offices he would assume, which the Old Testament alludes to in some ways, but we see that further articulated in the New Testament. They just weren't making any of these connections or actually listening to Jesus, which I think would have completely transformed and changed their disposition. If they understood the impact of Jesus' simple words about his exit, it would have changed the direction of their emotions. Undoubtedly, frowns would have became smiles. My question is, are our hearts filled with something that is distracting us from hearing the word of the Lord and enjoying these ascension advantages? You know, you have to take the Word of God and you have to bring it down to our level here. And God graciously does that. I'm just wondering if there's anyone in this room who is even right now distracted by your circumstances, whether it be sorrow or anything else, to the point where you're not actually hearing what God is saying to you today through His Word. I say this because it happens all the time. It happens to me all the time. Sometimes it's not sorrow, it's something else that distracts me, busyness. So I'll just ask some questions and, and maybe give you some encouragements. Are our hearts filled with sorrow? Is that our issue? Have we experienced some sort of loss, a loved one? A dear friend, I was thinking of a guy who's pretty well known, uh, who was killed on a motorcycle a few days ago, his funeral was yesterday. Maybe you know Josh Boykin. Do you have sorrow in your heart? Is it full of that? Let me, let me encourage you, if you are in Christ by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter is in you. Do you not realize this? He is, at this very moment, and at all moments, manifesting the spiritual presence of Jesus to you. And in the presence of Jesus, there is the fullness of joy. Lift up your countenance, brothers and sisters. For the Lord is with us, and he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. He is 
with you now? Where do you go for comfort in times of sorrow? This is going to sound really weird and Joel Osteen-ish, but you just turn around and go to yourself because that's where Christ is. You go to his word where you can hear his voice. You flee to him in prayer, but you must know that he is here through the Spirit. All of the comfort you will ever need is right there. It's such a thing as, as, as being so utterly overwhelmed by sorrow over some kind of hurt, hang-up, loss, or whatever, that it, it, it can just it can keep you in that particular mode for many, many years. And we must remember, as the people of God, if we're in Christ, we're the people of God, we must remember that we are to never agonize in sorrow like pagans who do not know Christ. And I think, how do we agonize like pagans who do not know Christ when we completely lose it when something happens and we lose self-control, we're not being led by the Spirit of that moment, or when we hang on to some particular grief for years and years and years and years. We never move on from it. That loss and that sorrow has become your idol if that is you. That's what you're worshiping. And the devil is so tricky and our flesh is so weak, we can get ourselves to the point that that's, that's, our, that's all we know. And we no longer can function without that dysfunction. You don't see Jesus get angry very often or frustrated in the Gospels, but you do at the tomb of Lazarus when two disciples lost it over the death of their brother. And Jesus is like, apparently I'm not your hope. Apparently I'm not your all in all. Apparently I'm not your source of satisfaction and fulfillment and your sense of security. You've placed it in your dead brother. Interestingly, Jesus brings him right back to life, but not for the purpose of ending their grief, but for the purpose of proving that he is their all in all. Only he could do something that supernatural and dramatic. I, I haven't lost anyone I'm close to lately. Praise God. So I don't want to seem insensitive. And I, I can only hope that that I will live out what I preach when that moment comes, because it will come. 100%, 100 out of 100 people die. <laughs> We're all going to die. Your husband's going to die. It happens. But there is a way that we respond to these things, and, and they're meant to drive us further and deeper into the, the wonderful, soothing, nurturing, comforting grace of Christ. Despair is not in the Christian's vocabulary. 
So if you have sorrow because of a loss or whatever, the remedy is Christ who is in you if you are in him. Seek him. The helper will manifest his presence to you and give you what you need in that time of grief. Not to mention that our great high priest invites us to, in our weaknesses to come to his throne of grace. Bring those hurts to him confidently. Are our hearts filled with guilt? If you are in Christ by grace through faith, your prophet has put an end to your sin and proclaimed your pardon and forgiveness. Do you not understand what God declared through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Guilt ought to be foreign to you. And guilt is different than conviction, by the way. Conviction is is a blessed thing from the Holy Spirit when we sin. He convicts us, helps us to see what we're doing. Guilt is something else. Guilt is a cancer. Shame is a cancer that devours us. If you're in Christ, you must understand that Christ has covered all of your sin, past, present, and future. There is no condemnation for those who are in Him. If God does not condemn you, why do you condemn yourself? In fact, I'm convinced that you will never be able to get out of your addiction or whatever your perpetual perpetual sin is if you're being ruled and reigned over by guilt. You need grace. Grace doesn't just cover over our sins. It empowers us to stand against it. Our lives are to be characterized by grace not guilt, by sanctification, not shame. If you have guilt and you're in Christ, you are putting that on yourself. It could very well be that you have a reoccurring situation because you're actively involved in a sin. Well, that is the Spirit trying to convict you. Don't mistake in that for guilt. And, and you want to get out of that situation and stop feeling that way? Stop doing that sin. You've been given the power to do it. Jesus goes up, the Holy Spirit comes down, He empowers us to live a righteous life. Perfectly? No. But we will still do it. So if you have guilt, remember you have, there's no condemnation for you. There's no reason for you to walk around with a perpetual sense of guilt. You ought to walk around as as the happiest person on earth. Oh, that's pretentious and fake. No, it isn't. You have been washed of your sin. You have been cleansed. What Christ has done for you is extraordinary. We ought to be the most joyful people on earth. And we ought to be the most fervently opposed to sin people on earth because we know what our sin caused. We should hate sin. 
You know, always looking for something to be victimized over or whatever. Oh, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, and I hate this and I hate that and I hate that. You know what? Stop hating everything else. Stop being, playing a victim. Hate sin. Despise your true adversary, Satan. But don't walk in guilt. That, that is, that is to, to seemingly try to nail cross, Christ back to the cross. I mean, that's utterly ridiculous. He's not going back. It's done. Our hearts filled with struggle, maybe some kind of a weakness or something, health ailments, issues, I don't know, whatever it is, just basic struggle, and, and I think that's kind of a ridiculous question because all of our lives are touched by some kind of struggle at times, sometimes more struggle than others, but, but if you're in Christ by grace through faith, approach the throne of grace confidently through prayer because our empathetic priest is ready to listen and give us a healthy measure of his wonderful mercy, his wonderful grace. Christ struggled in his flesh. Garden of Gethsemane. He got tired at times. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to face adversity. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows better than anyone else. And he says, come to my throne. And I will pour out my grace on you. Yes, Philip, I know what you're going through. I struggled. Yet I never sinned. And the beauty of that is that he knows that sometimes in the midst of our struggle, we sin, and that doesn't cause him to say, don't come near my throne of grace. He still invites us. Are our hearts filled with fear? This is pretty common. We become fearful for a number of reasons, uncertainty, um, we hear about maybe some layoffs that are coming at work and we start wondering, am I going to be on the list? And then we start working extra hard and then we get injured. Then we're on disability. Uh, We look at the uncertainty of our world and things that are seemingly or not seemingly, they are spinning out of control. We look at uh, the justice system. We look at politics, hopefully not for long. We we look at things around us. We we look at our family members that are you know, that are struggling and, and, and trying to work through cancer and these sorts of things. And just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fearful world that we live in. And, and many times, we as Christians have to deal with fear. And sometimes it can be overwhelming and our hearts can be full of fear, trepidation, anxiety, anxiousness, whatever. Right? I mean, hopefully, I'm resonating with you. Or if you're just like, you know, fearless all the time, great, I'm going to spend more time with you. Uh, <laughs> No, I won't, because then you'll get all weird, because I'm now, I'm, I'm so fearful. And you'll be like, I don't even know how to deal with this pastor. <laughs> I deal with fear sometimes. <sighs> the king of kings has crushed the serpent's head and delivered the people of his kingdom from the domain of darkness. He is 
currently seated on his glorious throne, a throne that is cannot be compared to any earthly throne ever. He is ruling and reigning over the cosmos. He is ruling and reigning over his church, his people, his bride. And he shall, without a doubt, absolutely return to subdue the nations, to establish his physical kingdom on earth. And he will rule with equity and righteousness. When good King Uzziah died, he's a king of Israel, uncertainty about the future and fear fell upon young Isaiah. You remember what I said, when a good king dies, people are left to kind of wonder what's the future going to be about. Are we going to get another Ahab? Because if so, I'm going to become Syrian. When you lose a good man. And young Isaiah was not yet called to be a prophet. He was predestined to be one, but he had not yet been called to do that. And he, like the rest of his people, were trepidatious and fearful of the uncertainty of what would happen next. I mean, we had a, we had a great king, and now what? We've had more bad kings than good kings. What does that mean for Israel? Do you know what set him straight on the matter? (sighs) Do you know what quelled his uncertainty and, and fear about the future? The anxiousness, the anxiety? It was a heavenly vision of the sovereign Lord. Chapter 6, Isaiah 6. It was a heavenly vision of the sovereign Lord seated high above on his glorious throne. And the, the train of his glory, of his robe, filled the temple. This was God's way of showing Isaiah who is in control. Undoubtedly, Isaiah was a good man, but I am a good God. And I am on my throne. I'm the only king you'll ever need. This was not only God's way of showing Isaiah who is actually in control. It was God's way of teaching Isaiah whom to fear. Because when Isaiah saw this vision of God in his glory with angels who are beautiful and extraordinary and God's holiness being such that the angels were covering their faces, hovering above him, he sees this vision of God's God in his glory on his throne, the train filling the temple, the smoke, the building shakes, and these sorts of things. You get a sense of God's holiness in Isaiah 6, right? 
And what does he do? Wow, that's really cool looking. Oh no, he cries out. He realizes, I'm a sinner with unclean lips. And, and man, my people, my people are people of unclean lips. And God in his grace purifies him of his sin and then proceeds to call him out into the ministry. It's almost paradoxical. We are to fear God, but we don't have to fear God because of what Christ did. I don't like to think of it as fear. I like to think of it as reverence. I don't have to fear God's judgment. Jesus absorbed it for me. But I should still fear the Lord because that is the beginning of wisdom. And the vision that Isaiah got, I think, would paralyze us forever. God is infinite and beautiful and holy, holy, holy in everything that we are not, and I'm glad and thankful for that. He is the only one worthy of our fear, but I call it reverence. If you have a heart of fear, you need to envision God on His throne. Go and read Isaiah 6 and look at what remedied Isaiah's fear. Fear of the future hogwash. I'm on my throne, ruling and reigning over the cosmos is what God shows him. I will uh, just close with a great quote from Calvin. I think the band can come up now. Worship team, please. I really hope that um, this last song, um, we're going to sing uh, Crown Him With Many Crowns. It's a great, great old hymn. and that We would be reflecting upon what we've learned today as we sing this song together. Christ is enthroned. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And he is worthy of all our focus and love and adoration and worship. And so as we sing this song together in just a moment, I pray that we would do it with much gusto and love in our hearts as we've been reflecting on who He is. Calvin wrote, The Lord, by His ascension into heaven, has opened up the access to the heavenly kingdom which Adam had shut. <laughs> For having entered in our flesh, as it were, in our name, it follows that we are in a manner seated in heavenly places, not entertaining a mere hope of heaven, but possessing it in our covenantal head. Amen. Let's sing to the Lord. <clears throat>